Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 81, Dr. Oliver Crisp on the breadth of Reformed tradition. Dr. Oliver Crisp is professor of systematic theology at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California. He came to Fuller in 2011 from the University of Bristol in the UK, and he has also taught at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland and has been a visiting lecturer at Regent College in Canada. Dr. Crisp is a leader in the field of analytic theology, which applies the methods and insights of contemporary analytic philosophy to theological issues. He is a co-founder of the annual Los Angeles Theology Conferences, a founding editor of the Journal of Analytic Theology, and co-editor of the book series Oxford Studies in Analytic Theology, published by Oxford University Press. The author of many journal articles and the editor or co-editor of ten books, he's also the sole author of nine books, including... Divinity and Humanity, The Incarnation Reconsidered, 2007, Revisioning Christology, Theology in the Reformed Tradition, 2011, and Jonathan Edwards on God and Creation, 2012. But he's here with us today to talk about his most recent book, Deviant Calvinism, Broadening Reformed Theology. Dr. Crisp, welcome to the Trinity's podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It's a delight to be here. First, let me say that I'm glad you didn't call the book Calvinist Deviance. <laughs> I think that would have led to some misunderstanding. Also, I like the painting on the front, which you did. Yes, thank you. Yes. I did, in fact, do the painting on the front. It's true. It's, it's a hobby of mine to paint paintings that appear on book covers from time to time, and some of those are on my books as well. Yeah, you know, I, I think he looks kind of sensitive for Calvin. I mean, I, I picture him as being more flinty-faced. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that's right. This is the young Calvin. Someone said, oh, look, at he's got these great cow eyes in uh, the portrait that I've painted. I suppose that's true. Yeah, this is the young, sensitive humanist before he became the embittered Genevan reformer, perhaps. Ah, okay. So you have to distinguish between the young and the old, much like Martin Luther. Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I think there's something to be said for that. Very good. Dr. Crisp, the basic point of your book is that we should not think too narrowly about the Reformed tradition. Is it more people within the tradition or outside of the Reformed tradition which, in your view, have too narrow a vision of it? Uh, well, I think primarily it's people within the Reformed tradition that I'm wanting to address. Although I also think that there's misconceptions from those outside. But I think what, uh, what initially provoked me to think about writing the book was the way in which, in North American culture in particular, there's a kind of resurgence of interest, um, a popular resurgence of interest in what's sometimes called the new Calvinism. And alongside that um, new interest in Calvinism from people who are theologically motivated and in churches and so on, has been a, a fixation with certain sorts of claims which are associated with Reformed tradition in, in people's minds, but which seem to me not always to represent the breadth of the tradition. So in other words, it seems that a number of people who have latched on to Calvinistic theology of a popular variety regard Calvinism as something more narrow than it historically has been. 
And so one of the motivations of my work here was to try and resource contemporary expressions of Reformed theology by saying, look, the tradition that we're part of here is much broader than perhaps some people at the moment seem to think, and maybe we should pay attention to other voices in the tradition than the ones that are often reported in the contemporary literature, because they've got interesting things to say as well. But I think also from the outside looking in, my sense is that certain people have a conception of Calvinism as something that's rather narrow and rigid and doctrinaire and uh, involves um, various sorts of theological positions which they find extremely unpalatable. And so th there is an ancillary desire in, uh, for me in writing this book to try to say something that might ameliorate some of those worries that people outside of the reform community have when looking at the reform community. Is part of the narrowness, in your view, a dislike for argument or denigrating human reason or something like that? I'm, I mean, I'm not sure that it's uh, a dislike of argument. If by argument you just mean laying out premises for a view that you hold that, that yield a particular conclusion, that's the, you know, premises that are well-formed and so on and follow logically one from another. I mean, my sense is that those in the Reformed tradition are known for their careful reasoning about Christian doctrine and perhaps sometimes are thought to spend far too much time doing that and not enough time doing other things. So I don't think that the concern is arguments as such. At least from the outside looking in, the concern is that those in the Reformed tradition have wedded themselves to certain views which seem to be distinctly unpalatable to those outside the tradition. For example, I think a lot of people look askance at the Reformed tradition and think, oh, that's just a kind of baptized stoicism. You know, you've got this notion of a kind of fatalistic doctrine of predestination and providence. There's no real room for human agency in action, and that's not something that we find terribly appealing. Within the tradition, I think there are those who, who are part of this kind of new Calvinist movement who do like arguments and do like arguing, but their arguments of this sort of narrow, often anyway, of this narrow variety, and the arguments are about things like the so-called five points of Calvinism and whether you sign up to all five points. So I guess my worry there is that those who associate themselves with this new Calvinist movement are in danger of arguing about things that seem to be rather more narrow concerns than historically has been part of the Reformed tradition itself. Now, how does this relate to the famous acronym TULIP? Yeah, well, maybe I should say what TULIP is. So TULIP is an acronym that is supposed to represent the so-called five points of Calvinism that were decided upon at the famous Synod of Dort in the Netherlands. So I suppose a TULIP is an appropriate acronym given that TULIPs are from Amsterdam. The T stands for total depravity. Here the idea is that human beings are corrupt in their moral natures as a consequence of the fall of Adam and Eve. The uh, U is for unconditional election, and this is the idea that God ordains the salvation of some number of human beings independent of any merit that he foresees in those individuals. So just he just decides that he's going to elect this person and not that person. L is for limited atonement. Some people who are in the Reformed tradition are not so keen on the notion of limited atonement. Some prefer to talk about 
particular or definite atonement. But in any case, the idea is that the effectual aspect of Christ's work, particularly Christ's work on the cross, his atoning work, saves this elect number that God has ordained for salvation and that it saves only that elect number so that Christ, in a sense, doesn't die for everybody. He dies for the elect. That's the limited atonement idea. The I stands for irresistible grace and that's the idea that not only does God ordain the salvation of a certain number of elect and bring about the means for that salvation in the atonement, but he then calls them by the power of the Holy Spirit and that call is irresistible. So there's no sense in which you could fail to respond to the divine grace that's um, given you in faith if you are a member of God's elect. And then P is for perseverance of the saints. So that's the idea that once you are called to salvation and united to Christ, if you are a member of the elect, then once saved, always saved. There's no sense in which you can lose your salvific state and and, uh, become a a sinner outside the bounds of grace once again. So once you are um, within the bounds of grace, once you're you're saved, as it were, then you're um, you're forever in that state and can look forward to and look forward to enjoying God's nearer presence. So that's what TULIP stands for, and that's what people mean when they talk about the so-called five points of Calvinism. And I think that uh, certainly those who are involved in this um, new Calvinistic movement, what the journalist Colin Hansen calls the young, restless and reformed, that these people tend to identify themselves by the five points of Calvinism. What's interesting to my mind is that in identifying themselves with the five points of Calvinism, a lot of these people who've come to this new Calvinism come from sort of free church backgrounds rather than from within the historic reformed churches. And so they identify with these five points of Calvinism. They think this is this, these are the sort of the, the hard core, the conceptual hard core of uh, the reformed faith. Whereas I think those who have grown up in or come to be members of uh, what we might call confessionally reformed churches don't tend to identify the reformed tradition with the five points in quite the same way. And the reason they don't is because people in those sorts of churches like Dutch reformed churches or Presbyterian churches, for example, they have the confessions that are the doctrinal standards of their churches to which they appeal when making doctrinal decisions. And of course, those confessions say a lot more than simply something like the five points of Calvinism. And indeed, some of those confessions don't say things equivalent to all of the five points of Calvinism anyway. So uh, my sense is that although the five points of Calvinism have historically been important, they represent only a sliver, as it were, of the larger reformed tradition, which is much richer and which can be seen in um, the kind of confessionally reformed traditions of, of which most of these new Calvinists aren't members, I think. It's interesting, in fact, that, I mean, it, it recently uh, Kenneth Stewart produced a book on um, 10 myths about Calvinism, which was a very helpful book in many ways, uh, doing something somewhat similar to my own work. In the back of that book, he reproduced an appendix which had, as he could, as, he, as far as he could discern, the earliest instance of the use of the acronym TULIP. And it actually only goes back to a magazine called The Outlook in 1913. So it's actually a fairly recent vintage, given the fact that the Reformed tradition goes back to the Reformation. That may be significant in as much as this is, this is an acronym that's of recent coinage, 
isn't necessarily part of the the historic confessional reformed tradition, though it sums up some of the, the teachings of that tradition un- undoubtedly, and has been sort of taken up as a rallying cry by a particular constituency in the modern church. Interesting. So, in your view, TULIP was just uh, kind of a heuristic device with a very specific origin, which really can't stand in as a good representative for this very complex, creed-based theological tradition. That is pretty much my view. Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, I think I was one of those people who started off with TULIP and thinking this is the be-all and end-all. And it's as I've studied these things more intensively over the years and and myself become part of a reformed confessional tradition that I've come to see that there's much more to that tradition than is often reported. Um, and I think some of it is also in, in the North American context those who are interested in reformed theology often appeal to certain sorts of authors as paragons of reformed theology whose views also are only examples of a particular strand of the reformed tradition. So here I'm thinking of so-called Westminster or Princetonian Calvinism from the 19th century and you get people like Charles Hodge and B.B. Warfield and their heirs in, in the 20th century theological context here in North America. And they're often held up as, you know, the, the people to whom we should appeal when making theological judgments of reformed nature. Now, their work is very valuable. I, I use it and have, have got a lot out of it. But they represent a particular strand of the reformed tradition. And certainly at the time in which, say, Charles Hodge was writing, it wasn't at all obvious that his views, although he often represents them as the reformed view, were identical with the reformed view. And there, there were debates in the 19th century uh, American Reformed churches between Hodge and some other interlocutors like John Williamson Nevin, who represented a different strand of Reformed theology, the German Reformed churches in America, where it's clear that uh, Hodge, who often thinks of himself as occupying the kind of moral high ground when it comes to being a, a, a representative of the Reformed tradition, ends up taking a minority report in the Reformed tradition, and it's his opponent, John Williamson Nevin, who represents the majority view on something as central as the doctrine of the Eucharist. So, I mean, I think that's an al- that's also an interesting factor in this discussion, is that the people that you pay attention to, I mean, I suppose this is a broader point as well, but we're all guilty of this to some extent, the people that you pay attention to and read and think, think uh, yes, those views are the best views on, the, on a particular topic, can, in some respects, skew your perspective so that you come to think, well, the reform view is pretty much the view that this person has held, when often uh, transpires that the tradition is is much broader than that, and, and um, to narrow it down to a small cluster of theologians from a particular school is, in a, in a way, to do a disservice to the, the much greater richness and, and breadth, to some extent, that one finds in, in a tradition like the reform tradition. Dr. Crisp, I wonder just how broadly you think of the Reformed tradition. Does it, for instance, include Arminians? That's a really good question. I 
do take a fairly broad view of the reformed tradition and I suppose how you cut the cake so to speak is going to affect what you think um, constitutes the tradition itself you know who's in and who's out so to speak I'd prefer to think of the reformed tradition as a cent- as something like a centered set rather than a bounded set in other words there's a kind of cluster of people whose views are clearly representatives of that tradition maybe there are certain people whose views are more peripheral but I prefer to think about the tradition in terms of a cluster of individuals whose views are uh, similar and associated by various doctrines, confessions, and other sorts of connections, rather than a bounded set where you have, you know, here's a boundary, if you're outside of that boundary, then you're not part of what we're doing, and if you're within the boundary, then you are. And if one thinks about the, tra- the reform tradition in that sort of way, then I guess there may be reasons for drawing the circle in such a way that the Arminians are part of that tradition. I mean, in one sense, in one sort of trivial historical sense, of course they are part of that tradition because Jacob Arminius lived and died as a reformed pastor and professor at Leiden University in the Netherlands. So when people these days point to Arminians and say, oh, there's Arminians and there's Calvinists and never the twain shall meet, and the Arminians are something quite different from the Calvinists. Well, in, in one respect, that's true, because I think it's true to say that Arminius's system of theology, as it was subsequently developed, does have important theological differences with much of the rest of the Reformed tradition. But in another sense, it would be untrue to say that uh, the Arminians are outside of the Reformed tradition, inasmuch as they are formed from within the Reformed tradition, Jacob Arminius being a case in point, and um, in the case of Arminius uh, himself, you know, the founder of the movement, if you like, he was someone who lived his entire life and indeed died within the bounds of the Reformed faith. I mean, of course, his views became controversial after his death, but he himself wasn't ostracized from the Reformed churches that he was part of. He was, he was queried and questioned and his views came under scrutiny, but he himself lived and died within that tradition. So. I tend to think that Arminius is a Reformed theologian, given a certain way of thinking about what the Reformed tradition is. I would want to qualify that, though, and say his views are, on on particular nodal issues, if you like, his views are views which are contrary to much of the Reformed tradition. So there is a sense in which, when you look at the kind of substance of the doctrines that he held, that his views place him outside the mainstream of the reformed tradition and i think someone like richard muller who's written a lot of very helpful things on the development of reformed theology and whose work amongst a a group of recent historical theologians has been very very influential on my own has written on arminius to that effect effectively saying look there's an historical sense in which of course arminius is a reformed theologian because he lived and died in the reformed faith but there's another sense in which his views were pushing outside of the bounds of what were considered acceptable views within the Reformed tradition and that's exactly what happened when the Remonstrants, that's the party that took up the cause of Arminius's theology subsequent to his death, were tried at the Synod of Dort and, and found to be people who held views that were inconsistent or incompatible with the, with the Reformed churches. And so we've got this historic divide. But let's, let's be clear about this. The historic divide is something which originates within the Reformed churches. So you might say that Arminianism is a kind of deviant Calvinism. 
Now, do you distinguish between the magisterial Reformation and the radical Reformation so that, for instance, Anabaptists or the minor Reformed Church in Poland would be outside of the Reformed tradition? That's another good question. The uh, distinction between radical Reformation and magisterial Reformation that George Hanson Williams um, introduced, I think, is a helpful one because there, there clearly are two distinct streams to the Reformation in that respect. And I, I do think that um, that's a, a useful a distinction, not just heuristically and, and for historical purposes, but I do think it draws a line um, theologically in important respects. So that the followers of, say, the Swiss Brethren or of Menno Simmons that we have with us today have ended up taking a rather different kind of theological trajectory from, say, the churches that stemmed from the Magisterial Reformation like the Lutherans and the Reformed churches and the Anglican churches. Um, so I think that is a useful distinction, and I, I do think that one might draw a line um, between, say, those in the Magisterial Reformation who, whose views are identifiably Reformed and those in the Radical Reformation whose views would clearly not be compatible with those in the Reformed tradition, not just simply on things like church polity, but on things like the relationship between church and state, and a host of other doctrines like um, the use of sacraments, certain sorts of things about liturgy, things about somewhat important nodal issues to do with the nature of salvation or the doctrine of God, for example. There is a distinction there, I think, which is a, a useful and helpful one. However, some people think, if we would just look at the Magisterial Reformation, that it's helpful to distinguish between, say, the Reformed Churches on the one hand and the Anglican Church on the other. I think that's a less helpful distinction. And the reason I think that's a less helpful distinction is that, firstly, it seems to me that the Anglican Church in the 16th century, as it reforms itself, particularly under Thomas Cranmer, is clearly a reformed church in its confessional basis, both in the 39 Articles and in the prayer book. But I think, secondly, also, the way that the Anglican Church was treated in the later part of the 16th century was as a sister church to the continental reformed churches. They weren't seen as a breed apart. And it's not insignificant that at the Synod of Dort, this great gathering of Reformed churches, we find that there's a British delegation sent by uh, King James, headed up by Bishop John Davenant, uh, which makes its presence felt at, at Dort and, and uh, casts certain votes along a more moderate lines. So I tend to think that there's a way of carving up, if you like, what the Reformed churches are that includes, at least aboriginally, includes the Anglican Church as well as the Continental Reformed Churches. The Lutherans are different because they're different theologically and they're different in terms of their polity. Right, and so are the Anabaptists. And so are the Anabaptists again. Yeah, I mean, it's not that the Anabaptists are all wrong and hopeless. They've got very helpful things to uh, bring to the table, I think. But, I mean, they certainly have important theological distinctives that, m that mark them out as something different from those in the Magisterial Reformation, both on the Lutheran side or on the Reformed slash Anglican side.
Dr. Crisp, do you think that some of the theologians that you discuss from the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries operated in a freer or less restrictive theological environment than nowadays? <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. I'm not, I'm not sure that would be true, actually. If anything, probably the reverse is the case in this sense, that certainly in the 16th century and, and perhaps into the 17th century, if you held certain sorts of theological views that were considered to be suspect or heterodox, that could get you into very hot water indeed. You could get thrown into prison or ha- be um, executed. And happily, we aren't in that situation these days. So I do think um, that there are important ways in which that would be false. Those living in the in earlier times, such as the 16th and 17th century, would have less religious freedom than we do. But I, I think that that must be tempered with the following sort of a judgment, that at least at the beginnings, um, in the first few generations of the uh, Protestant Reformation and thereafter, there is a certain breadth to the tradition, the Reformed tradition, that perhaps is missed in current discussions. So that when Reformed theology, say, is invoked, people tend to have these associations with the five points of Calvinism and Tulip, associations which I don't think were in place in the later 16th century and early 17th century, where uh, the sorts of um, sensibilities that informed debate about reform theology were much richer it seems to me and to some extent broader and I suppose it's not that surprising that as a tradition develops you find certain um, a certain ossification of um, particular views so that whereas in an earlier generation there was some diversity of views or perhaps even there were several different views tolerated and no one particular view was nailed down as the view to hold. Often in later generations, a particular view comes to be the view that is commonly held or the only view that's acceptable. Sometimes that's just because of theological controversy that happens in between times, and I think that's true to some extent of of, uh, some of the issues in the Reformed churches, some of which I discuss in the book. So, for example, there's, there's a worry that uh, in the 17th century there's a worry about the doctrine of eternal justification uh, that has to do with a, a particular controversy that arises, the antinomian controversy, um, that was, just wasn't around in the earlier stages of the life of the, Re- the Reformation churches. And so as a consequence of that, people come to particular views on that apparently arcane to- topic that, that were not nailed down in quite the same way previously. And I think that's probably true of other things as well. So, for example, on the question of the scope of the atonement, I think if you look at a number of the first, second generation reformed theologians, including Calvin himself, it's not always clear that they are themselves clear on the issue of the scope of the atonement, whereas that is something that later reformed theologians felt needed to be nailed down in one way or another. So, I think there's there's something to be said for the idea that through doctrinal development or through the d- development of a particular theological tradition, you often get a, a narrowing of that tradition, um, or at least a sort of stratification of that tradition as people come to particular views on a, a range of secondary and tertiary matters that perhaps weren't you know, the sorts of things that, that were um, discussed or that weren't hot topics earlier on in the life of the tradition. 
and to some extent, although that's inevitable, I think that's lamentable as well. I think it's a, it's a shame that these things sometimes happen, and that we often associate our views with the later, more developed theological tradition, and not with the earlier theological tradition, where often the you know the niceties aren't always uh, nailed down, and that might not necessarily be a bad thing in my view. In other words, it might not be a bad thing that we appeal to the early tradition where there's more leeway. I'm inclined to think that very creed-based Christian movements never go backwards. They don't have a reverse gear. Right. I mean, once they narrow it down further and further, like I can't imagine uh, Roman Catholicism going back on, say, the creed of Constantinople. Um, but then it's hard to imagine the bulk of the Reformed tradition going against, uh, I don't know, Westminster. Yeah, no, I think that I think you're absolutely right. That that um, the as a tradition goes on, it it um, not only develops but it accumulates, you know, creedal and confessional statements that, that you then have to live with one way or another. Um, I don't think they're all the same, though. I mean, there's a quasi legal aspect to very uh, Catholic, the very Catholic wing of Christianity where it's kind of a set of precedents. Things are more freeform, kind of on the Pentecostal, free church, Anabaptist side, where you could imagine some more shifts taking place, possibly. I don't know, because it seems to me they become, they have a tendency to get more, uh, maybe more Catholic as they go along, but... Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and there are, of course, reasons for that. But before saying something about those reasons, I think... It's also worth saying that even in Roman Catholicism, which has a very, a very developed sense of um, the tr- of a, a Christian tradition and of a kind of confessional, and as you say, quasi-legal status to various sorts of documents like the Catechism of the Catholic Church or pronouncements from various um, historic councils of the Church and so on. Even there, it seems to me there is a desire expressed in those documents to have a kind of dogmatic minimalism, if you like. In other words, to put as thinly as possible the particular doctrines that the faithful ought to hold. And we see that, for example, in in the Roman Catholic distinction between different levels or different strata of doctrines and dogma. So dogma uh, has this kind of semi-technical sense of being a doctrine that is part of the faith, is said to be de fide, and so ought to be held by good Roman Catholic Christians. Whereas there are other sorts of doctrines which are not part of that sort of hardcore of the faith, but which are either said to be, you know, certain or said to be statements that are, um, to, you know, ought to be held, or but they have some slightly less lesser status. And I think that we can see that even in something like the Catechism of the Catholic Church, where I notice there's some sort of reticence to over-define things. And partly I think that's because you just have to live with the consequences when you do that. And partly I think it's because there are certain issues where we're just not sure what to to say. You know, there are certain things we can say, but beyond that it's difficult to know what to say. And I think there is something of that in in Protestantism. Those aspects, those strands of the Protestant churches which are confessional in nature, like Lutheranism with the Augsburg Confession or the the Continental Reformed Churches or or Anglicanism with its 39 Articles, for example, those confessional traditions have, in addition to, say, the the great Catholic creeds of the early church, their particular confessional documents that form the base of those particular churches. But there, too, often the earlier 
statements of those churches reflect um, a, a sort of more porous approach to Christian doctrine than some later statements where things are nailed down more definitely. And you can see that, for example, in the way in which, say, the Scots Confession, which is the early confessional standard for the Scottish Church, is very different in tone and rather thinner on on the dogmatic side of things, where you know what it is that you ought to believe, than, say, the Westminster Confession, which becomes the later standard for Scottish Presbyterianism. Uh, which is, of course, much more carefully worked out, partly through all these different controversies, and a lot more is nailed down. And going on to the reasons for why it is that we see that in certain strands of Protestantism and uh, and not in others, I mean, when one looks at, say, Pentecostals, or or some Baptists, some uh, free evangelical churches, those sorts of non-aligned churches, they just don't have a confessional tradition. So... For that reason, the sorts of things that they hold as central to the to the doctrine of those churches is articulated in rather different ways and safeguarded in rather different ways as well. Of course, if you can appeal to a creed or a confession or a, a, a conciliar document or the pronouncement of a pope or something like that, then you can say, well, this is what we believe, that these things are, are written down so that you know we know what we, we ought to hold to. If you're in a more sort of pneumatic sort of situation by pneumatic i mean sort of a situation which is more dependent on a on sort of particular outpourings and expressions of the work of the holy spirit uh, as one finds in say contemporary pentecostal and charismatic churches which are of course a huge phenomenon globally speaking then one doesn't have that same um, confessional tradition to which one can appeal when saying this is what we believe and in addition to that the the very way in which um, theological authorities conceived is rather different so that you have this kind of ecstatic and um, charismatic experience of the work of the Holy Spirit which to some extent not only fructifies the life of the church as it goes on but also provides a kind of source of theological authority where you expect God to be speaking in the midst of the churches uh, week in week out so that the appeal to a kind of confessional standard or to a, to a written tradition to some extent, is less important in those situations. So I think that explains why different aspects of the, the Christian tradition have rather different approaches to um, thinking about these matters, and why you then get different emphases um, in different, different quarters of the Christian tradition on these, on these particular doctrinal matters. Dr. Chris, would it be accurate to describe you as a latitudinarian Calvinist? <laughs> well, I, it may be. I mean, latitudinarianism historically has a rather bad press uh, in as much as in the uh, later 17th century and 18th century, latitudinarians were associated with, the, with those who were thought to be doctrinally lax a kind of anything-goes approach to matters theological. Well, anything-goes is a little too 
uh, too strong but at least they were willing to let all sorts of things go uh, provided you had a very thinned out way of thinking about the divine perhaps you were something like a deist or uh, you know you believe that there was a caretaker god but he didn't really have much to do with the world in which we live uh, i thought they were supposed to be well on the well away from deism but just sort of less focused on uh, specifics and signing on to all the articles and things like that right so Was, wasn't that term from an anglican yeah so coinage? I, right no absolutely so i mean i suppose you could take a latitudinarian view where you're where you're simply saying not just deism but um there's there's a lot that is part of the christian faith that we just don't need to take a view on so you know Locke's account of christ for example well we do really think that christ is important do we need to have a you know rich and complex christology in order to be orthodox christians or can we have a rather kind of moralistic christology well if you're a Lockean, you might go for the latter rather than the former i would not be terribly happy with that sort of way of thinking about latitudinarianism because it seems to me that there are central and defining doctrines of the christian church which matter and are important and um which is important to have to have certain sorts of doctrinal parameters around but i hope that um my approach to christian doctrine and to those with whom i disagree in other parts of the christian church is is a kind of warm and open and dialogical one. I mean, that's definitely something that's very important to me as a theologian and to a, uh, to me as a Christian, that we seek to build bridges to those in other parts of the Christian tradition and indeed to, to those outside the Christian tradition rather than, than burning those sorts of bridges. And sometimes I worry that particularly my own tradition in the Reformed tradition, because the Reformed are, are known for being sticklers for doctrine, and for wanting to cross every T and dot every I of, of doctrine, that can sometimes go along with a rather sort of legalistic way of thinking about you ought to believe this and not that, and if you don't believe this, then you, you know there's something significantly wrong. And I guess I'm not very sympathetic to that sort of theological sensibility that sometimes is said to in, inform certain strands of Reformed theology. So to that extent, I would want to broaden out how we think about reformed theology and how we do theology that it that it ought to be done in such a way that it's dialogical and bridge building and seeking to understand and listen to those with whom we disagree as well as point out where we think they're wrong um, and who knows you know it might well be that reformed theology can be enriched by those who dis who with whom we disagree and indeed that we could learn something from from other people and I, I don't think that's impossible either quick to listen slow to speak slow to anger you know, those are virtues, it seems to me. Dr. Crisp, thank you for talking with us. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Be sure not to miss the next episode of the Trinity's podcast. We'll again have Dr. Crisp on to discuss issues from his book, Deviant Calvinism, including his controversial discussion of libertarian Calvinism. This week's thinking music was Thanks for Coming by Josh Woodward. You can hear more of his music at joshwoodward.com. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. 
Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time. Don't forget to love God with all your mind.